So I was coming down the hall to our apartment when I heard a scream and something that sounded like ceramic being violently broken. And it's coming from behind my apartment door. Now, my wife and I had only been married for a couple of weeks at this point. We've been settling into this new routine of getting used to the idea of being married. And Jenna always gets home before me from work and gets started preparing dinner. So I hear this scream. I know it's her voice. And I start running towards the door. Now, we live in kind of a glorified apartment building. It's a two-story unit. The bottom floor is just a furniture repair shop. And the top floor is four apartments three of which are stuffed to the windows with as-yet-unrepaired furniture. So after 5 p.m., the only person in the building until I get home is my wife, and it sounds like she's in trouble. So I start running towards the door, and panic begins to set in, and all the stuff's going through my mind. Is someone broken in? Is someone robbing us? What am I going to find when I open the door? How exactly does a 140-pound book nerd overpower an armed attacker? Is Jenna hurt? Worse? So I'm fumbling for my keys, and it feels like it takes an eternity to find the right key, and my, I'm you know, mentally spiraling into the worst-case scenario. We've only been married a month, and she's dead. <laughs> and I'm about to die, too. So I finally get the right key, rip open the door, and I find my wife collapsed on the table. Give me a hand, she shouts. Turns out she's fine. She had just set the last dish on our hand-me-down kitchen table, and the whole thing collapsed right down the middle. And she, she hollered and lunged and is now holding both ends of the table <laughs> up with all of dinner, you know, affectionately prepared for her loving husband, all laid out on this table. And, and she's just trying to keep the bottom from dropping out of the table and, you know, her freshly prepared dinner from scattering all across the linoleum floor. Oh, that was a minor incident early in our marriage. <laughs> but since then, the bottom has dropped out on things we depended on more than once in ways that really matter. What do you do when the bottom drops out on you? What do you do when the thing you thought was stable turns out to not really be as stable as you thought it was? Well, our first instinct, of course, is to reach for something more, table, more stable, not the table. We thought we could trust that table. Uh, it was a, a nursing home hand-me-down. You'd think it'd seen a lot, but apparently not enough. Dinner was, was what did it in. And I, I repaired it. I made sure it was never going to collapse down the middle again, but still, it's a cheap particle board table. And every time you go to set a dish on it, you're like, well, maybe this time is the time it collapses again. So what do you reach for when the bottom drops out on you? when what you thought you could rely on turns out not so reliable. When you face the loss of a job or the death of a loved one, uh, the realization that that dream you've been chasing is never going to come to fruition. The ups and downs of the social game you have to play in your school or your workplace. When you reach for something you thought would be there and it's not there anymore, what do you reach for when the bottom drops out? Well, Hebrews 12, verses 25 through 29 are the rhetorical pinnacle of the whole book. Everything that the author has been writing, he's been saying, he's been preaching to us throughout this whole book has, 
is finally coming to fruition, or it's coming to its height in these five verses, Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. And in it, he delivers his final warning. His final warning, uh, both a warning and a reassurance, actually, for his audience. He wants them to know there is an unshakable foundation that you can find, that you can reach for, that you can put your hands on. There's an unshakable foundation for those who find it, but for those who don't, for those who have heard it but reject it, eventually the bottom's really going to drop out in an eternal sense. Everything we depend on will be shaken. So we're going to walk through Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. As we dig into this, uh, you're going to see it kind of moves through three steps. First, there's a warning, uh, then an explanation, and then some reassurance. There's a warning, then an explanation of that warning. What exactly do we mean by that? And then a reassurance in light of that warning, a reassurance for those who've listened to it and responded to it. So let's jump in. If you haven't turned there already, Hebrews 12, 25, it's on page 54 of this journal that uh, hopefully you've been carrying for the last 35 sermons in Hebrews. If you've lost your place, put one of those new bookmarks in it. You'll be able to find it next week. Verses 25 through 29. Let's take a look at the, wor- the warning from verses 25 and 26. The author tells us, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Speaking words, spoken word is a significant part of this letter because over and over the author is reminding us that God speaks. Maybe you remember all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Over and over in the letter, he reminds us God is speaking So his exhortation to us, his warning, his strong urging to us is to listen to the God who speaks. All of it comes to a point in verse 25, listen to the God who speaks. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Now, you and I all know that when somebody says, listen up, uh, that command only gets obeyed to the extent of that person's dignity and competence. In other words, how valuable is that person and... How worthy are the words, the things they're going to say? We only listen to people if they've, they've, got that, if they've earned that respect or if what they say is they can make good on it or it's valuable, it's something we need to hear. So the higher the person, the higher the value of what they're saying, the more we listen. This is why my mom always shouted, wait till your father comes home. In this context, it's God who is speaking. No one higher than that. No one whose words are any more valuable. No other person who, when they say something, you know 100% it will be done. God is the one who's speaking. He's been speaking throughout this whole letter, so don't refuse to listen. It only makes sense. That's the author's warning. And then he 
he ties back to what he had just said in the verses prior to give us a little bit more motivation to listen. He refers back to this Mount Sinai experience. If you're here last week, maybe you remember Pastor Jeff preaching about the, the experience at Mount Zion and the experience at Mount Sinai. Sinai, trembling and fear and darkness do not touch Zion, the, the assembly of the firstborn. You can come, come be close. So our author refers back to this Sinai experience that he talked about in the previous verses. If, if you remember your history, after the Israelites left Egypt, but before they'd been given the Ten Commandments, before they rebelled and wandered in the desert for 40 years, God led them to Mount Sinai. And there God met with the people to formalize the covenant relationship. Basically, it all boiled down to whatever God says, they will do. That's what they agreed to. It's the commitment they entered into. And so God met with them on this mountain wreathed in smoke with thunder and lightning all around. There's a, what sounds like loud trumpets. And Exodus records that, that Moses spoke, God responded in thunder, and the whole mountain trembled. Trembled greatly, it shook. I have to believe when something that big shakes right in front of you, you feel it. The ground is shaking. And the covenant that was established at Sinai came with a blessing. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. And you don't have to read much between the lines or really all that much farther in the text uh, to kind of get the, the gist. And if you don't obey my voice and keep my covenant, there's a warning there, an implied and then later explicit warning so the author of Hebrews is pointing us back to this spot in history, verse 25. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that's the Sinai experience, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Right, the point being when God warned the people at Sinai, those who rejected the voice of God didn't get away with it. They died in the wilderness. On this pilgrimage, we're all on from being rescued to meeting our rescuer. Some died in the wilderness. Some didn't listen to the voice of God. And his point is, okay, look, if back then the people of God didn't escape a warning from earth, then what are the odds that now we, the people of God, would escape a warning from heaven? It's not going to happen. It's not great odds. You get the point. And the context for this, this warning to listen, do not refuse the God who is speaking, do not refuse the one who is speaking to you through this letter, through Christ. He said the, the real warning here comes in verse 26. He's got scripture to back it up. Verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, right? The shaking, the trembling of the mountain at Sinai. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Which is a quote from the prophet Haggai. Okay, this is a major fast-forward through Israel's history. You remember the, Israel left Egypt. They wandered in the desert for 40, 40 years. They make it into the promised land. They're sort of existing as semi-autonomous tribes until there's just too much infighting. They ask for a, a king, a monarchy. They set up a monarchy. It works okay for a little while, except uh, there's a fallout in the royal family. Now it's two monarchies, two kingdoms. One by one, they're picked off by opposing forces coming in, destroying the, the governmental center, the capital, destroying eventually the religious center, the temple. 
And 70 years go by with the majority of Israel, uh, or Israelites being forced into dispersion among the nations around them until finally some are allowed to return. So a small group returns, they begin to rebuild the capital. After an extended delay, they begin to rebuild the temple. Uh, but the new temple pales in comparison to the old one. And those that can remember the old temple are, are in despair at the sight of this new and lesser temple. That's when God speaks through Haggai. And he says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong. Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, and in this place I will give peace. See, in Haggai, in its original context, God is saying, don't despair that your experience of me, the outward experience of me, isn't what you thought it would be. There's a, there's a point coming where I'm going to shake the heavens, the earth, the nations around, and the riches of the world are going to flow into Jerusalem, and the glory of this place, of my presence, is going to be so much more than it even was in the past. I'm going to shake the nations. See, in Haggai, in Isaiah, in a number of the Psalms, Trembling or shaking is a metaphor for judgment. It means everything's going to get upended. The way you thought things were is going to get turned on its head. Everything you thought was solid ground, you're going to find out was not quite as solid as you thought it was. It's quicksand. The bottom's going to drop out. Even in Haggai, this image of shaking becomes explicitly judgment on the nations around a few verses later when God says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. Right, so our author, the author of Hebrews, who knows his Jewish scriptures extremely well, he puts all this together. At Sinai, the mountain trembled. In the Psalms, God shows up like an earthquake. In the Psalms, the righteous are said to have faith in the unshakable, unmovable God. In the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Joel, there are hints that at the end of days, God is going to shake all of creation, that earth will literally be knocked out of its place. All in metaphorical sense, but all picturing the wrath and the judgment of God. And then in Haggai, God explicitly promises a future shaking beyond just the earth, but extending to heaven or the heavens as well. So that's a promise, our author concludes, a promise that hasn't yet been fulfilled. So he's been talking about Mount Sinai and Mount Zion in this context, about heeding the voice of God speaking to us. And in that context, then he warns his readers, don't refuse the one who is speaking. Don't reject the God who calls out to you. When the Israelites in the wilderness rejected God's voice, do you think they got away with it? He says, no. What makes you think you could get away with rejecting God's voice now when he sent his own son from heaven? He says, back then, God spoke and the earth shook. 
But God's promise, there's a shaking coming that includes not just the earth, not just one mountain, but the heaven as well. He says, don't think you can escape a judgment that extensive. Don't refuse the one who is speaking. So are you listening? That's the warning. Now he goes on to explain it in verse 27. Verse 27, he actually digs into the quote from Haggai a little bit to explain exactly how he got here. Verse 27, he says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. In other words, yet once more means it's going to happen, and a shaking means things are going to be removed. So it indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Yet once more, this is going to happen. There's going to be another one. And when it happens, there are only two possible outcomes. Some things will be shaken loose and removed. Other things will be proven strong and will remain. If you've been driving around Indianapolis and Carmel the last few days, it's been like driving through an arboreal war zone. Right? Everywhere I look, trees that looked strong on the outside have been exposed for having rotten cores or weak root systems as entire trees are just toppled over with earth and roots hanging off of them. In our particular neighborhood, we lost power for a couple of days because of a couple of these weaker trees. No tree in our area was left unshaken, but thankfully, most of them were proven to be strong. They remain. The ones that weren't, the ones that took out our power and flooded my basement, they're being removed piece by piece. See, all of earth is subject to shaking. All of earth, actually all of heaven. He says, uh, the removal of things that are shaken, he's got this parenthetical phrase, that is things that have been made. In other words, every created thing, earth, heaven, heavens, us, animals, creatures, whatever, everything, in other words, everything that's not God, every created thing is subject to the shaking, is subject to the judgment. It will be sifted, it will be weighed, it will be found wanting or not. Every created thing is subject to the judgment. Nothing will escape it. Everything will be rocked to its core until its essence is on display to be judged. Everything will be shaken. Some of that creation isn't going to stand up. Some of it will be removed. Some, but not all. Look, the point here isn't that everything created will be shaken and removed. The point is everything that is created is subject to the judgment, and only those things that are not rightly related to God's kingdom will be removed. Everything not, not rightly related to God's kingdom will be found weak and removed. Everything that is related to God, related to his kingdom, everything rightly ordered and pertaining to his kingdom will be found strong, will remain. Everything built on Christ. Everything built on Christ, the, the sure foundation we've sung about, will survive the judgment quake. So he looks at this warning and says, there's a shaking coming. Let me explain that to you. Everything will be shaken unless it's rightly ordered to God. That comes through in the reassurance if we look at verses uh, 28 and 29. 
See, verse 28, 29, you may have noticed as we preach through this book that every time the author of Hebrews issues a warning, you can tell he's a pastor because he, he, he says, here's the warning, and then he says, but I'm not talking about you guys. He says, I'm not talking about you. Listen up. This is a real warning, but I'm not talking about you. I am sure of better things for you. The same thing happens here in 28 and 29. He says, therefore, let us, me and you, he says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He started out this paragraph, the rhetorical pinnacle of the whole letter, with a command. Do not refuse him who is speaking. And he, he ends it with another command, or two commands, actually. Be grateful. Offer worship. Be grateful and offer worship. Any of you who came from more of a liturgical background may remember there's a point in every service where uh, the person up front says, uh, let us lift our praises to the Lord, and the people respond, it is right to give him thanks and praise. It is right. It's the right thing to do. It's our obligation. It's our duty, but also it's our, it's our basic emotional response. Uh, praise is what C.S. Lewis called inner health made visible. It's our right response to the God who is giving us the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Be grateful and offer worship. Be grateful. When you think of all the things in your life that are subject to being knocked out of place just when you needed to rely on them most, and then think, but at bottom, there's a kingdom that cannot be shaken that has been purchased for me by Christ and is coming to me through the Holy Spirit. We're beginning to receive it now and will one day receive it completely. And you think, everything I rely on is going to have the bottom knocked out of it except for this kingdom. How can we not be grateful? How can we not respond with thanksgiving? This past week, this was put in stark relief for me, this uh, this dependency that I have, that my heart has on stability. Earlier in the day, I received an email from the chair of our elder executive board uh, that he sent to Jeff and I. Uh, by the way, keep praying for Jeff as he's on his sabbatical. I haven't heard a word from him, so I'm assuming it's going great. Uh, keep praying for Jeff. But uh, we, we both got an email this last week from the chair of the EEB just thanking us for our service at Faith and letting us know what's happening with our compensation in the next fiscal year. It's great. It was exciting. And then that evening, I sat with a, a pastor friend whose church had faced financial struggles and cut him from the staff. Uh, he was, and he looked shaken to his core. So we sat around the fire pit, we mourned together. We mourned the loss of something that he thought was unshakable. That was a foundation on which he could build his life and his purpose. And on the one hand, I mourn with him. On the other hand, I'm grateful for the stability that I have here. But at the same time, it would be a mistake to think that everything I have is ultimately and eternally stable. It'd be a mistake to rest the weight of my heart on a job or a relationship 
or a reward or accolades or any of the things that, that I depend on to make myself feel like I I've have some worth in this world. And yet at the same time, our hearts long for stability. Our hearts long for stability. We weren't built for unstable ground. Our hearts long to know that underneath there's something solid. When I talk with college students, I often hear the same phrases. I can't wait to just be settled. I can't wait to be done and know what's next. I can't, like, this is good, but I know it's temporary. I can't wait until I, I have the, the thing that, that I know will last. As if any job lasts longer than the average college education. But it's not true of just college students, it's true of all of us. How much of our looking forward to the future is us looking for a more stable, better set of circumstances, a more stable job, or a more stable career path, a more stable financial situation, a, a more stable relationship, a more stable home life, a more stable church? Our hearts weren't built for instability. They can't handle it. Pause for a minute as I stacked all my notes in the wrong order. And there goes all of the pathos I just built up around that point. As I'm shaken up here because suddenly all the pages are not in the right order. They are not dependable even though they're all numbered. I'm going to put those over there so I don't actually go back to them. You have, is your copy still in order? All right. You know, when our hearts are so built for stability that when we find something we think we can rest on, the natural response is to shout it from the rooftops. Tell everyone. Of course, unless they're going to come take it away from us, and then we don't tell them about it. But otherwise, I mean, imagine, remember back to uh, your kids or when you were in high school and you got that college acceptance letter. What'd you do with it? Look, look, look what I got. They love me. They really love me. I mean, that, that's what we do when, when you're in college and you get that first job offer or the internship that you, you know you need in a, in a summer semester in order to, to continue on your career path. You get that. You tell people. See, our hearts are built for something solid. And when we find something that's even temporarily solid in this world, we can't help but be thankful and offer praise. We can't help but be grateful in worship. It's what we do. It's how we're wired. It's how God created us. Look at verse 28 again. He says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. If we think about the kingdom coming that cannot be shaken, let us be grateful and offer to God acceptable worship. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Again, Lewis, in, in his reflections on the Psalms, he says, I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, he goes on to say, because praise is never complete until it's been shared, until you bring others into the praise along with you, and you say, look at her, look at that, look at this, don't you see it? Praise it, or you're missing out on something. See, when we grasp the goodness of God to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ that has been on display for 12 chapters now, how can we not 
be grateful and worship? How can we not be grateful and worship? Now, I feel like ending right now with that, except I want us to drill in for a little bit on what we do with this. We've gotten to the, the height of the letter. There's a warning, some reassurance. So what do we do with that? Well, the first thing we need to do is don't write off the warning. Don't write off the warning. Don't look at that warning and say, oh, well, you know, I'm good, so uh, I don't have to worry about it. Listen to the warning. Whether you've been here for all 35 sermons on Hebrews so far or this is the first time you've heard it, pay attention. Don't refuse to listen. Because this whole letter has been an explanation of how God in Christ has fully and completely made a way for us to come to him. There's no other sacrifice that will do it. He's saying, look, a, a deliberate refusal to listen to God and to come to him through Jesus can only be catastrophic for you. Don't refuse to listen. Second question, of course, is what do you reach for when the bottom drops out? Do you have an unshakable foundation? Are you one of those who, he says, as for us, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Look, we know as we go through life, it's impossible not to seek some sort of stability, some sort of foundation on which we can rest the meaning of our lives. Uh, Leo Tolstoy was a great Russian novelist, and he faced this same existential crisis at the height of his fame and popularity. He'd written War and Peace, he'd written Anna Karenina, and now he's going, well, what's all that worth? I mean, basically, the guy's going to live for eternity in the memories of every English major. And he says, what's that worth? He writes in his confession. Today or tomorrow, sickness and death will come. They had come already to those I love or to me. Nothing will remain but stench and worms. He was a real melancholic kind of guy. He says, sooner or later, my affairs, whatever they may, they may, may be, will be forgotten and I shall not exist. Then why, on, why go on making any effort? Why go on making any effort? He says, my question was essentially, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? We're all going to face a shaking. Even just an individual one at the end of our lives. Is there anything in your life that the great shaking of death is not going to wipe away? Only what pertains to the kingdom will remain. And if you are one of those who through Christ is receiving the kingdom that cannot be shaken, are you responding in gratitude and worship? Are you responding in thanks and praise? I mean, the only way not to respond in gratitude and worship is to think that you don't need an unshakable kingdom or that the kingdom you've built for yourself is solid enough to hold everything. But there's no... There's nothing you can build that won't turn to stench and decay at some point in the future. So what are you grabbing onto when the bottom drops out? Do you have an unshakable foundation? 
And if you do, do you respond in gratitude and worship? And, and he says, not just any kind of worship. He says, let us offer to God acceptable worship, he says in verse 28, with reverence and awe, fear and trembling almost, like at Mount Sinai. For our God is a consuming fire. So when you come to God, is it with reverence and awe or with a flippant and cavalier attitude? Do you approach God in recognition of his utterly surpassing character or uh, the big man upstairs who's watching out for you? Acceptable worship, it's an interesting phrase and one we're not going to really dig into because all of chapter 13 explains what acceptable worship looks like. If you bounce ahead real quick to verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's what worship looks like. Worship worked out in life. We'll spend time talking about acceptable worship in the next couple weeks. So you hear from verses 25 through 29, these questions we need to wrestle with. Are we listening to this warning? Are our lives built on the foundation of the kingdom that cannot be shaken? Are we responding appropriately with gratitude and worship, thanks and praise? So, heed the warning, yes. Examine yourself. Yes, are we resting in the one and only unshakable kingdom, responding to it in worship? But also, look to the one who brings us into the kingdom. Remember from Hebrews 12, all that will remain after the shaking of all things is just that which is rightly related to God. Through, the author of Hebrews has told us, the great high priest through Jesus, who has offered the one and only sacrifice. Our great high priest, Jesus, took the judgment. His soul took the shaking that our souls deserve so that we could inherit an unshakable kingdom. Does that hit you? Does, pardon the pun. Does that shake you in any way? In Matthew's account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, he records a unique fact about the crucifixion that none of the other gospel authors mention. He says, when Jesus died, when the wrath and judgment of God was poured out on him in our place, Matthew tells us that the earth shook. The rocks split. The tombs opened. And the Roman guards who were watching Jesus die explicitly says, felt the earthquake and said, truly this was the Son of God. At the shaking of the earth, they finally realized there's a judgment coming. And the one we just killed is the one who's bringing that judgment. But if you are hearing this message today from Hebrews 12, remember Jesus Christ took on the judgment, the, the end of all days shaking that we deserved on his cross so that you and I could walk free into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so we respond in gratitude and worship. Pray with me. 
Father, you have been beyond gracious to us in a way that we do not deserve, could never ask for, could never imagine. We go through life looking for something stable, for solid ground to put our feet on, to put our hearts on, to put our lives on, and you've given us the only unshakable kingdom in Christ. For that, we can't do anything but say thank you. Worship you in singing, in prayer, and in lives lived in accordance with the rule, the order, the pattern, the path of your kingdom. I pray that you would help us as we go from here to go in worship, to go in gratefulness, to go in thanksgiving, and so order our lives in a way uh, that is all for the joy of bringing joy to you. The one who is giving us the only thing in this world that cannot and will not be shaken. The only thing that will stand. It's in the name of the king of that kingdom that we pray. Amen.